If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. This will be our fourth and final sermon from this chapter. We've been working our way through the book of Daniel and uh, slowed down a bit in this chapter since it's a very important chapter, um, especially as it comes to uh, explain to us the nature of uh, the kingdom that Christ brings in the New Testament and even the nature of Christ himself as the Son of Man. And so now we come to our final sermon um, in this chapter as we look at that little horn that Daniel saw. Now, just to preface our reading here, uh, this chapter in the book of Daniel may seem strange to you um, if you're especially new uh, to the church and new to reading God's word, Um, but it's given in terms of a vision. So the things here are symbolic, um, conveying a reality to Daniel in symbols uh, so that Daniel and the people of God might take comfort and know that God will establish his kingdom and he will uh, establish um, his people on the face of this earth through his son. And so when we come to this chapter, we want to think um, wisely, but we also want to take into account that it's depicted to us in terms of these symbols. So before we pray, let, uh, before we read, let's pray that God might bless his word to us. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And even as we come to this uh, difficult chapter, we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you'd open up our eyes to see even the ways in which you triumph over your enemies and the ways in which you establish your kingdom and your salvation, even in the face of great opposition, and that all glory and honor truly belongs to you, and that will be the song of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daniel chapter 7, and we'll begin at verse 1 and read the whole chapter. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of the man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things." As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court uh, sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. And this is where our focus for this sermon will be here. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which, is, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, And shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all his dominion shall serve and obey him." Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at times, and often this is the case, that the evil in the world around us seems like an uncontrolled cancer. Um, It spreads everywhere, and everywhere we go, everywhere we turn, everywhere we visit, uh, there is evil there. Evil can seem as if it is um, widespread and running rampant everywhere. But throughout history, certain individuals uh, may arise on the scene of world history in which the great evil that we see around us that seems to spread like a cancer, in these individuals it seems to concentrate itself. One of the greatest examples is the, uh, the rise of Hitler himself, right? The great evil around the world, yet one figure rises in the midst of it in which this great evil concentrates itself so that his fall brings with it the fall of all that is underneath him. And so throughout history, we see various individuals rise in which, again, the evil that we see in the world around us is very pointedly concentrated, even like a little horn. And this depiction is what we find here in Daniel chapter 7. This figure is depicted in terms of a symbol like a little horn. A horn was often a depiction of a king, one who has power over the face of the earth. 
And so here in Daniel chapter 7, he sees this figure, this little horn, in which the great evil in the world, in which it opposes God and his people, is concentrated in a particular individual. And this uh, teaching throughout scriptures, this little horn, uh, has various names and often very intriguing to people when they hear about this little horn. This little horn, uh, the Apostle Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness or the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle John refers to him simply, maybe most well known, as the Antichrist. Now when we hear that, a number of obstacles um, come before us in how we ought to then understand the Bible's teaching about this figure. And there's three obstacles that I think we can at least pinpoint when we think about this figure, the little horn, the Antichrist. The first obstacle is mere rationalism. Uh, We hear of this mysterious figure, uh, this one in which uh, evil will be concentrated, and we write it off as myth. Um, It's actually been the response to a number of people to the Bible about this figure, the Antichrist, which the Bible speaks about, as simply just the imagined figure that God's people have come up with in order to sort of make sense of the world, to give some order to the evil that is around us in the world around us. Now, the problem with this uh, view is that God's word um, reveals to us that there is more than merely what meets our eyes. That there are, there are indeed spiritual forces at work in the world around us, evil forces that seek to destroy God and his people. And rationalism has never been able to contain itself. Uh, rationalism sets up reason and the senses around its perimeter, uh, but yet it can never keep out what is, goes beyond our senses and goes beyond the things that we can merely reason about. And so um, even as we ourselves experience great evil in this world, the world knows that this must come to an end, that evil must be overcome, and that great figures do indeed rise up in which evil is concentrated, who must be put down and judged. And therefore, rationalism has never satisfied the mind or the heart of people, and therefore we ought to reject it. More could be said about that. The other error goes in the opposite direction, or the other obstacle, right? On the one hand, rationalism writes off the little horn and the Antichrist as a a figment of the church's imagination. But on the other hand, we have the obstacle of speculation. Much has been said, and much that has gone beyond what the Bible has said about this great enemy, the archenemy, the Antichrist of God's people, This is seen, for example, in the Left Behind films that some of us have maybe seen in the past and has been really the product of dispensationalism and its popularization, where over-specialization has been given regarding this figure, that he is merely, um, and and so when we think about this figure, we don't want uh, to go beyond or try to go beyond what the scriptures say. We want to want to understand this figure insofar as God has revealed him to us and, and say no more than that. And so we want to avoid the obstacles of rationalism and the obstacle of speculation and think biblically about what the Bible has to say about this great enemy, this foe of the people of God, one in which evil in the world will be concentrated so pointedly, even like a little horn. And so when we uh, engage in this investigation uh, this morning, or an hour in the afternoon here, I want to ask five questions, right, about this figure, to think biblically about this figure. 
five questions we want to ask about uh, this little horn. First, who is he? Second, when will he come? Third, how will we recognize him? Fourth, what is his end? And fifth, why do we need to know about him? So these are the five questions that we're going to uh, consider uh, together. We won't be able to say everything. Um, We want to mostly focus on what's revealed to us here in Daniel 7. But we want to um, think again um, carefully about this figure, this one in which the great evil in the world will be concentrated. So the first question, who is he? Daniel speaks to us of this figure here. He sees him in a vision and sees him as a little horn. And this little horn is one that makes war with the saints of the Most High. So he is a figure who opposes the purposes of God and who stands opposed to God himself in establishing his kingdom. Now, a number of details are given, again, in symbolic terms, regarding the rise of this little horn. It says there that he conquered three other kings and um, arose in the midst of ten others as well. I'm not going to try uh, explaining all of that here. Again, the numbers here are symbolic, uh, ten being a number of completeness uh, for us. And so this little horn arises here in Daniel 7 as a great enemy, the arch enemy of God and his purposes. In some sense, he is the final boss that rises to destroy God's purposes and prevent the Son of Man from receiving a kingdom and God's um, purposes being fulfilled on the face of the earth. Now, as I said earlier, this figure is spoken of in the New Testament under a couple of different titles. And so we're going to turn there just to see more about who he is. So in 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes about this figure. And refers to him as the man of lawlessness. So just to read some verses here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Right? So Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, and they were being told by people around them that the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, had already come, and they simply missed it. And Paul here is going to go on to explain to them that the day of the Lord has not yet come, because certain things must first happen. And he goes on to explain in verse 3 those things. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deceptions for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, 
I'm not preaching a sermon on this text here, but there are a few things you want to draw out regarding this little horn. You'll notice, uh, for, firstly, that the description of the man of lawlessness um, follows very closely with the description of the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, specifically in terms of the uh, element of persecution and the element of deception. And what we begin to realize uh, through the Apostle Paul and then later through the Apostle John is that various uh, figures have arisen throughout history who have opposed God's church who prefigure this final ultimate foe. So so throughout history, various uh, antichrist-like figures have arisen who have opposed God and his church. And so while the Apostle Paul and Daniel foresee a specific individual who will emerge on the scene of world history leading God's people astray by speaking blasphemies and claiming to be God, uh, that this kind of figure arises throughout history. As Daniel looked forward, uh, later on in history, uh, Antiochus Epiphanius would arise and establish himself in, as God within the temple in Jerusalem, and so on from there. Nero would come and desecrate the temple. Domitian would come and destroy uh, God's temple in AD 70, and so on. Various figures, that, not that you need to know them specifically, but various figures have arisen throughout history anticipating and prefiguring this final foe who will emerge against God's church at the end of the age. Now, we're going to explain why we need to know of this foe, but that is simply who he is. He is one, as Paul says, is inspired by the work of Satan himself, and one who will lead God's people who have not loved the truth astray. And so this is an end-time enemy whom the church will face before Christ is revealed and comes again. Leads to the second question, when will he come? So who is he? End time enemy. When will he come? This is a question that the church has uh, tried to answer wrongly um, over the years, and I'm not claiming to answer it here myself. Um, I do not know when he will come. We cannot give a date. But as I said earlier, we recognize that his activity will oppose the church from the from Christ's. Um, resurrection to his coming again. Between the cross and Christ coming again on the clouds, he will continue to oppose the church until he finally emerges at the end of the age. It's why the Apostle John, in his letters, we won't read these texts, you can read them for yourself, in 1 John chapter 1 and 2, and chapter 4 as well, says that not only has, um, the Apostle John says that many antichrists have come. Right, Paul, uh, John sees, again, many figures who oppose the church, who deny that Jesus is God, who inflict heresy and infect the church with heresy, are antichrist figures. And therefore, the question, when will he come, needs to be answered properly. On the one hand, he's already here, and therefore the church is called to be on guard and to love the truth and to hold fast to the truth, as we're going to answer the why question later. And therefore, again, the question is not merely looking forward to only to a final enemy, but recognizing that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in these last days between the cross and the clouds, between Christ's crucifixion and Christ coming again on the clouds with glory. Until that day, the church is to stand um, opposed to this figure, not with flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. And we do so in the power of the gospel. 
But it does seem, as most Reformed commentators understand, and by that I would take Gerhardus Voss, Herman Bovink, my systematic professor at um, Mid-America Reform Seminary, Cornell Zvenema, and hosts of others, uh, the typical Reformed interpretation is that there, while there are many anticipations of this figure, there will be a final manifestation, one in which the great evil will be concentrated to the greatest extent, to the maximum extent, who wages war against God's church in leading a great apostasy for those who do not love the truth. And therefore, God's church is to be on guard against such figure. This is the typical Presbyterian and Reformed uh, reading of this figure. So when will he come? He is already here. And therefore, we ought to be on guard and we ought to love God's truth and stick closely to it because it's in God's word and it is according to the truth that we are taught to love the true Christ. Not the one who is opposed to Christ, not the one who puts himself in the place of Christ, but that through the word we come to know the true Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we ought to be on guard even today. Third question, how will we recognize him? Right? And we've been talking about this and answering this question already. What are his characteristics? What will he do? Well, the main thing that Daniel highlights about this figure are his eyes and his mouth. You notice it says in verse 20, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Its mouth, its words are the primary um, tactic that he uses against the church. Often we think of this figure in terms of, its, of his persecuting power. His worldly influence and power to put down the church. And the book of Revelation reflects upon this a bit. His power, he does possess such worldly power, economic power, political power, uh, to oppose the church. But the main thing that we ought to be on guard against is his mouth, where he speaks deception and lies. And this is true even of our great enemy, Satan himself, who came to Adam and Eve in the garden, not with a sword, but with a serpent's mouth, speaking lies, bringing into question God's word, and leading them into apostasy, leading them away from the truth of God. And it's this that the Apostle Paul most emphasizes as well that we read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And therefore, how will we recognize him? By his proud words, and his deceptions, by his proud words and his deceptions. Great boasts are found in his mouth. He, as uh, Daniel describes him here, he opposes God with an with a inflated view of himself and of his power. It says in verse 25, He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. What is fixed by God himself, the time and the law, he is seeking to change. He is putting himself in the place of God, seeking through his deceptions to be worshipped, to, to lead people astray from following the true Christ, ultimately to follow him. It's one, it's one of uh, the reasons why the apostle, uh, well, rather Jesus Christ, established elders in his church. When the Apostle Paul is leaving Ephesus, uh, likely never to return again to the church that he established there, he warns the elders, you can read about this in Acts, he warns the elders saying, wolves are going to come among you. Wolves are going to come in, sheep clo- in sheep's clothing, inspired by the spirit of the Antichrist, speaking lies and deceiving the people. And therefore the elders are called in every congregation 
of, of Jesus Christ's church to guard the flock, not only in terms of their lives, but also in terms of the truth and doctrine. There's a doctrinal uh, responsibility that the elders of this congregation have to guard the flock. And therefore, and the reason is because the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. The horn, the little horn that Daniel foresaw is already deceiving. We see his work at play in churches that bear and, and, and uh, fly the flag of the LGBTQ+. I mean, this is the infiltration of the Antichrist into the church, the place in which his tactics and his attacks are directed. He's one who comes within the church to deceive and to lie, and therefore we hold fast to our confession and the truth. And we guard our hearts and our minds against his lies and his deceptions by knowing God's word and by testing every spirit according to it. And so that is how we will recognize him in terms of his pride and his power, in terms of his deceits and his destruction, all of them directed against the church of Jesus Christ. And again, various such figures have arisen throughout world history, and will continue until this final figure emerges. But then this leads to a fourth question. What then is his end? Right? Will he succeed? Will he triumph as the Antichrist over the true Christ? And the Apostle Paul, again reflecting on Daniel 7, reveals to us that his end is destruction, that he will not win in the end Uh, The Apostle Paul says that when Christ appears, it says in verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the lawless son will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This figure, as he comes at the end of this age, will be met with the true Christ, who will come in the clouds of glory, and his very appearance, the brightness of his glory, will itself put to death this Antichrist. Despite his great power and despite the overwhelming um, persecution that he wages against God's people, right? Daniel says he wages war against the saints of the Most High. Nevertheless, when Jesus Christ comes, his end is destruction. He will be slain and put to death, never to rise again. And so while we see various Antichrist figures who were, who are, but will one day be no more when Jesus Christ comes and puts an end to all who have opposed his kingdom and his people. And on that day, as as the angel reminds Daniel, the time will come when the saints will possess the kingdom. It's interesting when Daniel asks for an interpretation, he's intrigued by this little horn, and often God's people are very intrigued by this figure. And Daniel asked for further information. Can you explain more about this fourth beast and this, uh, this horn that arises? But it's interesting that in the interpretation that Daniel receives, he's almost told Daniel, that's not the exact question that you should be asking. Don't merely be intrigued because this horn will be judged. The Ancient of Days, the Father in Heaven, will issue a decree and he will be put to death. And the saints of the Most High, those who are united to the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's they who will possess the kingdom forever and ever. So what is his end? His end is destruction. 
not to overcomplicate things, I know there's probably millions of questions that you're already thinking about this figure. And feel free to ask afterwards. You can't say everything. And I'm trying to be quite concise um, to not say more than we ought to about this figure revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, but it is interesting how in the book of Revelation, his number is the number 666. And again, people have speculated about what that number means. We see it all around us. And like all the numbers in Revelation, and even the numbers here in Daniel, they're symbolic numbers. And the number 666 is very simple. It's the number of falling short of perfection. Throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven is perfection, right? On the seventh day, God finished his work and rested on that day. But there will be no rest for this figure. There will be no rest. His number is 666 because he will strive and seem to succeed, but will never be able to finish his work. God will put him to an end. The number of 666 is the number of being frustrated. It's the number of trying and pressing as hard as I can, but never coming to completion in the end. It's not a literal number. It's not a physical mark that you have to be afraid of. Rather, all people who follow the beast, inspired by the spirit of the Antichrist, are marked by this number, 666. They will join the beast, the Antichrist, in the end, in their destruction. Because if you read later, so the number 666 comes in Revelation chapter 13. Well, if you read just the next chapter, Revelation 14, those who follow the Lamb are marked by a number as well. A name is printed upon them. It's the name of the Lamb. And the point that John is revealing in Revelation is that all people are marked. All people are either following after the spirit of the Antichrist unto destruction and opposed to Christ, or people are following the Lamb wherever he goes, Jesus Christ. Right, all people, your, your life, everybody here, your life is moving in either or direction. None are neutral. None are unmarked. And therefore, are, you have to ask yourself the question, am I marked by the spirit of the Antichrist that leads to destruction, though it may seem to prosper in the present, right? It says that the little horn prevailed over uh, the saints of the Most High, right? He seems to have great success, but he's put ultimately to an end. And so am I following him or am I following the Christ, who though I may suffer in this life and though I may endure hardships for his sake, yet nevertheless, he will come again for me and bring me into his glory, that I will be the one with him who will possess the kingdom, an everlasting kingdom and a dominion that shall never be uh, destroyed. Who am I following? And that's what leads us to our final question, and kind of already starting to answer it. Why do we need to know about him? Why why does the Bible reveal to us, sort of in shadowy form, we don't get details, we're not told specifically where he comes from, um, though much speculation has been given about this. And yet we are given a revelation of this future figure who is presently at work today, and will be revealed in the end of the age. Why do we need to know about him? Well, a few things as we come uh, to a conclusion here. The first is that, as we've been saying, that we might then be on guard and hold fast to our confession of the Christ. If you read throughout uh, the New Testament, um, as Jesus had warned, many false Christs already began to arise in Paul's day and John's day. And they began spewing out heresies, leading God's people astray, right? John says they went out from us because they were never of us, right? They were in the church. They were speaking in the church. 
And yet they were leading people away from the Christ, the true Christ. And therefore, how are we to be on guard against the work of the little horn, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, as he's variously called? It's by holding fast to our confession of Christ and growing constantly in our love for him. As we've been tossed out into the sea of the nations around us, from which beast after beast arises until one day this final figure comes, we are to hold fast to our confession of Christ and to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Our minds are to be fixed upon Christ, looking to him and trusting the word that has been recorded for us here in, in, his, uh, in his scriptures through his apostles. As I said earlier, right, many false teachers arose within the early church and continue to do so today. But Christ had commissioned his apostles with an authoritative word of who he is and what he has done. And it's that apostolic word that we hold to, even still to this day. And so, therefore, we ought to know this, that we may not be deceived. We may not be lured away, away from the true Christ, to follow a false Christ. And secondly, we also ought to know who he is, that our hope might be renewed. The Bible does not reveal this figure to tickle, merely tickle our ears. It doesn't reveal this figure that we might fear and be in dread of this figure, but rather that we might have our hope renewed. Because despite his great strength and despite his great deceptions, he is one who is destined to be defeated. He is one doomed to destruction. And therefore, as we hold fast to Christ, we are our hope renewed. Cornelis Venema, again, my professor from Mid-America Reform Seminary, had said this in his book, The Promise of the Future. He said, The scriptural teaching regarding the Antichrist calls the church not only to vigilance, but also to renewed hope. However difficult may be the circumstances of Christ's church, however close to home may be the opposition to Christ's person and work, Christ will not fail to return in power to consummate his saving work. The true people of God do not tremble at the prospect of the Antichrist. They do not become anxious whenever someone reports that he may have come. Rather, they remember the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, written to comfort the church and steady her hand, that when the man of lawlessness is revealed, Christ will return and slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. This figure, the one in whom... The great evil of this world will be concentrated, will be put to death. And his death will issue in a new age, a new world, a world of peace, a world of of glory and of joy. You know, we see various figures, as I began the sermon with, rise throughout history. Ones in whom, again, great evil is concentrated. And the great fight against this enemy the people as they fight against this enemy have this hope in their hearts that once he's put down, once he falls, however he may fall, a happily ever after will emerge. And yet throughout history, various figures arise and evil is put at bay for a time, but then it emerges again and again and again. But when this figure, this final figure who opposes God and his people arises on the scene of world history, And he is put down. It's then that a true and eternal happily ever after will emerge upon the world. It's then that God will bring his people 
into that happily ever after in his kingdom. It's then that they will possess the kingdom. And so this figure ought then not to discourage us, but encourage us. It ought to motivate us to hold fast to the truth, to know the Christ, to stick close to his word, and also then to fight the good fight of faith, to hold fast to our confession, and to keep our eyes fixed upon the Christ until he cracks open the sky one day, descends on the clouds of glory, slays his enemies, and brings all of us, his people, into his everlasting glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. And while uh, your word can often be uh, difficult in certain places to fully understand, and, and while you have also not revealed every detail for us, and yet you have revealed to us what is good for us and what we need to know. And so, Father, as you have revealed uh, this great arch enemy of your church and of Christ, the one who is at work even today and will continue until Christ comes again, Father, may we be on guard. May we fight the good fight of faith. May we take up the full armor of God in, this, in, the, in these last days, holding fast to your word. May we not be led astray by uh, the, uh, the idea of, uh, of rationalism and its, its rejection of any uh, foes and spiritual foes that would arise in uh, the world's history. May we also not be led astray by speculation, going beyond your word, but may we go as far as your word instructs us And may we be then instructed by that word. And help us then, Lord, as we are instructed by your word, then to love Christ with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, to desire his coming, and to have our eyes fixed upon him, whose glory is today hidden, but will one day be revealed. May we look to him, our king and our captain. We pray this in his name. Amen.